Hello and welcome to BR Football Ranks. This weekend, we saw football take a stand about the horrific killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. We saw Weston McKenney, Marcus Turam, Jaden Sancho, Ashraf Hakimi and countless others on social media make a crucial statement that needs to be heard by everyone across the globe. That systemic racism towards the black community is abhorrent. There's been so much said from so many people who are wiser, more educated and more insightful than me on this. And I'd encourage you to spend some time this week reading and observing the calls to action that are taking place everywhere. But it struck me that where these players lead, it's our duty as fellow human beings and people who class ourselves as being firmly against racism to follow and use whatever platforms we have to try and enact that change. This is football. It's the most widely watched game on the planet. It's the working class game, the game of the people, of all people. It breathes from the streets of London and the favelas of Rio, from Atlanta to Accra, from Beijing to Bogota, from Canberra to Cairo. Our heroes come in all different shapes and sizes, in all colours and creeds across the planet. It's the world's game and it belongs to everyone. There should be no barriers to entry. When racism rears its head in any form, from the stands or the players or the governing bodies, from explicit chanting to implicit privilege, we must condemn it and fight it with everything that we've got, every single time. Inaction is part of the problem. Silence is compliance. We haven't been good enough, and I'm sorry for that. But this fight for equality cannot stop our stadiums or in our game. It must be channeled into every single conduit of society until this virus, this pandemic that has lasted millennia, is chased from the system until it is extinguished. This is going to involve a lot of reading, a lot of listening and a lot of self-examination. It's not going to be comfortable examining your own privileges and learning where we have to make drastic changes to our approach. But it's part of a process that has laid dormant for centuries while some of us reap the benefits and others were systematically repressed. The time has come where we need to do better than that. It shouldn't have taken this long, this amount of brutality, this many black lives lost for us to come to this conclusion. I'm sorry that it has. So to everyone out there hurting, smarting, consumed by the pain, we pledge our active support. To those grieving the devastating loss of yet another innocent life, we grieve with you. To those fighting for justice, we too will fight. And, and to those looking to the future and the creation of a better world, we will help as part of a proactive force to make that a reality, to understand the nature of the beast, to get better at trying to shed its nauseating grip on everything, and to help leave the remnants of this broken world shattered in the dust behind us. There is never, ever, ever a place for racism in football and everywhere beyond. Full stop. Wonderful, Jack. Very moving, man. There's so much said this weekend, boys, that I'm not voice of anything. I'm, I'm trying to understand this as much as anyone else and come to terms with it and, and see what's right for us to do. But it felt that we probably needed to say something and that's what it came to. Yeah, fair enough, fair I enough. Good words, Jack. Yeah, I think it was uh, fitting that you would find some words for, for a moment like this. Um, crazy times, lads. I've obviously been away. It feels like we've lived like a decade in the last three months with everything that's happened. Obviously, things are very strange out there in the world right now. But somehow we're going to talk about football and try and give people an escape, which I think is always important, you know, as as trivial as it might seem to talk about football in times when there are other things so much more pressing. It's kind of our role to, to help people in other ways. And I think that, um, you know, we will try and do that while um, informing and bettering ourselves in other ways as well. I think throughout this pandemic and, and what we've heard from lots of people and lots of listeners is that this has been somewhat of an escape for people for an yeah. hour, you know, each week, just thinking about things that aren't on a scale of the world outside us. And obviously 
the last weekend and, and the couple of days have been crucial in, in, in self-examination and looking at these things. And, and we saw football be a conduit for that at the weekend. And it shows us that football can be and sport as a whole, you know, a reflection of society. Yes, but also a channel for good. And I think that we need to, you know, make sure that we're channeling that as well as much as we can. Absolutely, Jack. Absolutely. And we do look, we do have, we are able to provide that distraction at times and that relief, which is great. And Dean, we welcome you back this week to a couple of weeks of paternity leave. Some tough times, I imagine, but little Reese is doing all right. Yeah, I mean, really puts things into perspective, I guess. Um, it's, it's been hard having uh, a two-year-old and a, and a two-week-old baby, but Reese is doing great. Yeah, he's, he's, um, he's opening his eyes now. He's uh, doing, doing, reaching little milestones, so he's, uh, he's getting there, and Dylan seems to love him. So, yeah, it's all, it's all been good. I've obviously timed it really well because there's football back on TV. So I've been agreeing to um, sit on the sofa and hold him for his naps um, and just take in back to back to back Bundesliga games. So um, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm selfless like that. I'm selfless like that. Um, but at the same time, Nats, I've got to say, I have picked up a really weird hobby. Okay. Um, I have been studying bird's nests. Um, now, three weeks ago, I don't think I'd spent more than 10 seconds looking at a bird's nest in my life and then I stumbled across um a site called um rate my bird's nest nest. it's called nest box live and people buy these bird boxes which have cameras installed and you watch the bird find the box build a nest lay eggs bring up the chicks and then they fledge and I've literally watched these birds grow up. And I'm proud to say in the last 24 hours, five of the six blue tits have fledged. It's been fantastic, <laughs> lads. It's, it's really been something to behold watching these lads grow up. Um, there's just one left at the moment. Uh, he was the runt. So what's he's, his, he's what's his name? Tufty, his name is. <laughs> little tufts. Um, and fluff. And he's just been stuck at the bottom of the nest. They've been sitting on him for, for um, the last week or so. So, yeah, lads. This is the new me. Um, <laughs> new I will child. be a twitcher. bird's nest watcher. You're a twitcher, a twitcher soon. In the and um, I'm pretty sure that when I move house, which is hopefully reasonably soon, um, one of the first things I'll be buying is one of these <laughs> bird's nest boxes. <laughs> well, oh, that's wow. how that's how Dean's weekend has been. Sam, did you enjoy the football this weekend? Uh, yes, I did, mate. I did. Um, bit of sun, a uh, bit of Bundesliga. I found the sweet spot on my balcony where I can get perfect Wi-Fi signal um, so I can stream Bundesliga through BT Sport and sit in the sun and be comfortable. So that was, a, that was a picture of that. looks pretty good or I saw it on your Instagram. Well, so my 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 setup is fine because I've got Wi-Fi works, but my fiance Rachel has had to produce some kind of crazy uh, like like two floor length wired uh, solution to make it so that she can she can work out in the sun as well because she has to use a VPN and connect through something else so it's a bit too demanding on the Wi-Fi because it loses signal outside but I'm sitting pretty like I've just got I've got a laptop on a stand sat there let, you know lying back watching the Bundesliga it's been great you know I haven't been stressing about football because well my team isn't back in action yet because the you know the Premier League isn't in action yet so much nicer to just watch football and not really care about what happens. You just like enjoy it for the ride. Mm. Absolutely dreading the return of the Premier League, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking the same about the championship. Now, yeah, I'm a Gladbach fan, but I don't actually care if they lose. So it's quite cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same with Frankfurt. I don't even, I actively I just didn't watch them at the weekend. I just chose well, the Schalke game instead. Well, we're in a bit of a rough patch, Dino. What can I say? You know, ups and downs in the season. Um, yeah, downs. 
I threw, yeah, my, I toys out, threw my toys out of the plan massively when Leverkusen lost 4-1 to Wolfsburg in the week. I, I had a, had a yeah. strop and didn't yeah. talk to anyone for about three hours. Shouted <laughs> loads at yeah, Charles Aranguiz. Yeah. Yeah, it, <laughs> it wasn't great. I'm not going to lie to you. But, uh, but, you know, bounced back at the weekend. A big win on Friday night. So, so pretty, pretty pleased with that. And, you know, looking like we're going to secure that hold on the top four. So, you know, absolutely over the moon, if I'm honest. Can't yeah, it looks like we have more uh, preview shows coming up, lads, because all the other football's coming back soon. And I have to say, the clo- behind closed door stuff been a lot easier to watch than I feared it would be. So I'm actually really looking forward to it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we haven't heard your views on, on this because you've been you've been away, Dean. But was you know how you found it okay? You've you've not been too okay, disturbed. Yeah. The, first, the first couple of games, um, I like Leipzig games because they have that board around the pitch and you can't actually see the stand. So yeah. I like I like watching their games. Um, <laughs> they don't really have that many fans at the home games anyway, so it's not yeah. that different. Uh, there have been times where I've turned off the sound because I just have found it a bit unnecessary because I don't really need to listen to what what's the commentator saying and the fact that there's no crowd noise. It, it does feel a bit strange. So there have been times I switch off the commentary or find alternative commentary. Um, but yeah, I have to say I, I have I have really enjoyed it, and I've probably actually taken in way more Bundesliga than I normally would. I always make a point of watching Dortmund and Bayern and then pick and choose in between the others, really. But um, yeah, I've been watching games I would never have watched before. So yeah, really enjoying it. Quick I'm, still sh- really, I'm looking forward to Porto on uh, on Thursday. Fam- Famalisal versus Porto as, uh, as the Portuguese league returns. I'm pretty hyped for that as well. I'm ready to add a second league to my portfolio of watching. It's, yeah. gonna be, it's very exciting having, having the old boys back. You know, obviously Boa Vista kicking around. You know, can't wait to see what their assault on the top four is going to look like this year. Um, but, you know, mostly it's, it's just nice to have football back. And just like to make a quick shout out to all the rank squad who joined Sam and I on Sunday. We did Dortmund, Paderborn. Turned out to be a hell of a second half, didn't it, Sam? It did, yeah. Uh, Nil-nil at half-time and we were moaning about almost everything. Oh, yeah. and, and then seven goals followed in the second half. Jaden Sancho's first ever uh, senior hat-trick. So lots to dig into, lots to enjoy. To be fair, it was, you know, the game was done by the 75th minute and then we just started chatting with the people in the comments section about Mason Greenwood, about Dortmund, about Man United, about all sorts. And it turned into not just like a commentary of the game, but just like a bit of a kind of the book club that we actually wanted to start just before coronavirus hit. And we actually weren't able to do that where we wanted to watch games with people and, and tweet using a hashtag. Well, this has kind of replaced it. So it's a commentary, but it's a loose commentary. And um, if you just basically want to come and chat with Jack and I about football while taking in a game, like let's say this weekend, Saturday, Bayer Leverkusen, Bayern Munich. Uh, yeah, that sounds two, like a good one. 2.30. Uh, yeah, 2.30 in England. Uh, so what's that? It's going to be, be 9.30, 9.30 US. On the East Coast. Coast. Hopefully see you as many of you down there as as possible. It's the Hot Mic app and it syncs up to your TV so the the commentary goes live with the game. But it's more than just commentary. It's just a bit of a chat about pretty much all the things and and lots of questions and answers. So we've got got lots to hang on to. But um, also also we'll we'll, we'll be taking questions on Dean's bird bird nest fetish as well. Uh, Happy to answer those as well. I'm doing a live commentary on Hot Mic that day (laughs) on this new (laughs) that I found. <laughs> okay, stealing and, our listeners. Yeah, exactly. Dean, our guest, our guest today is a uh, is someone close to your own heart. So I think I'll let you introduce him. Yeah, Alex Inglethorpe. We have coming on. He's the academy manager at Liverpool, uh, formerly at Tottenham, and charges their youth setup as well. He is genuinely one of the best uh, football coaches in the country. 
probably in the world, to be honest with you, but I haven't seen them all, so I can't be sure about that. Um, I have known him since I was a kid. He was my coach from probably the age of about 14, 15, something like that. Um, and then I played under him for like five or six years up into adult football. Um, and then he went on to far bigger and better things than I did. That's why I'm sat here every week talking to you and he's just on for one week only. But um, honestly, he's he's got one of the greatest minds I've ever come across in football. And I think it would be really interesting to um, to catch up with him and see what he thinks it takes to, to make a, as a professional footballer. Well, let's get right into it. Welcome back to BR Football Ranks, where we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Alex Inglethorpe, Liverpool's academy manager and an old friend of our very own, Dean Jones. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's good to be here. Dean, I was going to let you intro this one because, you know, it'd be, I feel it'd be unfair to do anything else. Yeah, and I've always told you I've got contacts in high places and I think I finally had to prove it, didn't I? So um, we've got on one of the, the best coaches in, uh, in the country. Um, I've known Alex for a, a long, long time. He had the, um, not sure I'd say privilege, but he, he had to coach me when, he, <laughs> when I was younger um, and he was beginning his coaching career. Um, probably played under Alex for about, in total, probably about five or six years, if you include youth turning into adult football. Um, and then Alex obviously went on to much bigger and better things. He managed Exeter City, um, managed to pull off a, an FA Cup draw at Old Trafford, which I was lucky enough to be at as well. That was amazing. Was Tottenham in charge of Tottenham's youth setup, and now is obviously in charge of Liverpool. So um, it's quite a journey you've been on now from, from when we uh, started off. Yeah. Seems like a little, well, it doesn't actually seem like a long time ago. It's only a long time ago when you add up the years. But um, yeah, I'll hand it to you. You were a talented goal scoring number nine. A bit like I'd describe you as a bit like Inzaghi. Is that fair? <laughs> I was probably a bit better, wasn't I? <laughs> offside a lot. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think, think I was that good, but I was all right, wasn't I? You were very good. I know half you were. You, I, I'm half joking, but you were. You were a little bit like Inzaghi. You used to play off the shoulder and. Probably didn't like it to your feet quite so much, but the moment you got the other side of the defence, then there'd usually be a goal. It was um, <laughs> no, happy days. Yeah, it was good times. So, lads, when uh, when Alex was my manager, probably like 15, 16, we won literally everything you, you could win. We didn't lose a game at, at one point for about a year. Um, and every, so the, the biggest thing you could do at that age was, was win the County Cup. And so in the final of that County Cup, we were 2-0 we were down at half-time. Um, against a team called Collier's Wood and we were getting a pace in. We, we, we really weren't in the game and we, th we thought we'd lost. And I remember walking into the changing room at, at half-time and Alex, when he wants to get angry, he's a nice bloke, but when he wants to get angry, he can get angry. But he does it in a very, um, a very clear way of, of getting his point across. And he was like, right, every single one of you sit down right now. We're going to win this game. We're going to win the cup. You just got to listen to exactly what I'm going to tell you right now and carry it out and we will win this cup final. But you've got to listen. You've got to do it. And so my my instruction was you stop running. You stop running in behind. Like that's not going to happen anymore. You're getting no joy out of it. So me and the other centre forward, um, Darren, said, right, both of you, just stand still on the halfway line. All you're going to do is set the ball. I'm going to have third man runners going in behind. And... I reckon within 20 minutes of the second half, it was 2-2. Both of our goals had come from us setting the ball off, third man runners going in behind. I think one of them, we'd managed to, to get a penalty. 
um, and we won a, we won the cup final in a penalty shootout. And um, I'll never forget it. It was probably the first time I, I really appreciated what a coach can do. Um, and I think that a lot of people that, that play football um, don't really realise that a good coach, what he can really bring to the game and how how you can read a game. And it was probably the, the, the best I, I saw Alex like at that at that point of, of our careers um, or, or careers we thought we were going to have um, actually <laughs> change a game. It, it was amazing to, to see it actually happen. <laughs> you literally carrying out instructions and seeing a game change and you're being involved in it. Do you remember it like that, Alex? Do you know what? I don't remember. I remember the half time. I remember being very, very fortunate. Sometimes as a coach, you're lucky to get a long walk into the dressing rooms. That was my, that was the case at Exeter. And a lot of the time, by the time um, you get to the dressing room, you've probably got a different team talk than the one you were going to have if you'd, if you'd started, you know, if you, if you don't just sort of like walk into the dressing room, it gives you time. Um, I do, I'm fine enough. Now you say that, I do remember it. What I, what I remember more was um, two all, and it was going to go to a, into extra time and penalties. I was going to go into penalties, I think. I'm not sure there's extra time. I think it was straight to penalties, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember yeah. looking on the bench and just deciding to change the goalkeeper with about 30 seconds left. And I looked on the bench because there's a young lad called Christos who was unlucky not to play, perhaps, but he was, he was just a, a one-off character. And he was just eating a bag of crisps. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of thought, hmm, yeah, you'll do me. You don't look particularly nervous at this time. So he put his golden winders down and um, went in goal and made two unbelievable <laughs> saves. And that was it. So that's the uh, the World Cup 2014, Lou Van Gaal, uh, Tim Krul, but the, origin, the original. That's the original. We didn't Tim get the Krul. same credit at that time. That was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're going to take a ranking based on, on that career that, that started, obviously, with, with Dean's mob and, uh, and then and carried on into you know, quite the wide world of football. So I'm going to chat to Dean. He's going to lay it down and, and we'll go from there. Okay. Yeah, I think the, the kind of point of getting you on now, I mean, a, a lot of our listeners are aspiring footballers, aspiring tacticians or coaches, you know, people that listen to this podcast generally love the, the more minute details of the game, but also have at some point all dreamed of, of being a footballer. And I think that having you on, I'd like to know like what it actually takes to make that step to becoming an elite footballer and not only making it to an academy like Liverpool's, but then taking what is probably an even more difficult step going from the academy to the first team. So say something like like we've seen um, happening this season with Liverpool, obviously they've they've been able to embrace the youth setup. Jurgen Klopp's done that and a lot of those lads have got their chance. Um, I'd just be interested to know from you, from your experiences at, at Tottenham and at Liverpool, what the traits are, the five traits, I guess, that you think really separate the very good from the exceptional. Okay. Um, I think, it's, can I start you off with a sort of like, there's a little bit of a, yeah. Um, and sort of an anecdote, if you like, that a couple of years ago, I mean, I'm really lucky I, I get to work with some amazing people and have done. So, you know, I, I think it's fair to point out at this stage that it's never just one person. Each, each player that will have come through, I'm lucky enough to have worked with, <laughs> will have also worked with tens of coaches and other academy managers probably along the way. It's never just down to one person. And of course, the, you know, the, the biggest accolade has to be usually with the, with the player themselves. They're the ones that have to do the hard yards and, and invest. But... We were talking about this the other day, uh, say a couple of years ago, with um, two guys who got a Liverpool with me. One called Nick Marshall, who in his own right was academy manager at Nottingham Forest, and Steve Highway, who I brought back, who was, of course, academy manager at Liverpool back in the day. So me and Nick are sort of 
pontificating one one lunchtime around which players that we've sort of been through and the traits of them, you know, which players have come through our systems at the time. So Nick starts off and, you know, if it was a card game, you know, it's, he'd be sort of like sat there. He threw in Jenis and Dawson and Andy Reid. And I'm thinking, that's quite impressive. That's, that's, that's pretty good going. So I sort of countered that and I thought, right, okay, I'll go strong. So I went with Harry Kane and then Townsend and Livermore and Bang Trent. You know, that, that card went straight in as well. Yeah, just um, throwing the captain straight in there. Yeah, I just thought I'd do that. Um, <laughs> and then if it, if it were a card game, you know, Steve Iwo would be the one with the sort of Stetson on, just sort of saying nothing, just sort of sat in the background. And he, um, <laughs> he joined in with Fowler, Owen, Carragher. Um, he, he didn't even have to really put the Gerard card down, to be honest. He'd won it before before he even got wow. there. So, yeah. But the point of it was that in the end, we got sort of talking around the, the players that we'd worked with and what, what were the common themes between them. So you couldn't, for example, say um, they all had genuine pace because Owen did, but maybe Harry Kane, <laughs> you know, wouldn't say had genuine sort of like blistering pace. Uh, some were powerful. You might say, um, you know, maybe a, a Cara was really, really powerful, but others probably didn't quite fit the bill. So if you actually just stripped away that everything that was unique to that player and left with the things that were unique or were, the, were a common thread that ran through all of them, then there was a nice little list that we sort of compiled about you know, what those characteristics were. So I'm guessing the question is, you, you know, you're asking what, what was on that list. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Happy conversation you've had. It's a handy conversation because <laughs> I sort of referred to it last night and I was thinking about it knowing I was going to come on. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll put, you know, out of the sort of nine qualities, I'll put the five down that I think are probably at the front of that list. <laughs> so the first was that they're, they're good learners, they're coachable. Um, you know, and then that's a sort of, I think, with any young player or any young person that you want to work with, the first thing is, you know, are they coachable? But within that, you know, I think they have to be fairly single-minded as well. So it's sort of like, it's a little bit of a, a paradox in that you've got someone like Andros Townsend who's a really good example of he was really stubborn as a player but in the correct way very single-minded very driven knew he wanted to be a 1v1 sort of player go past people two-footed but he was also very very open to taking on instruction so I think that the first quality is that you know the ones that I think play at the highest level are they are coachable they are they are good learners they tend to be and I'm talking about as as kids you know, maybe that changes as they get older and they form different opinions, but they tend to be uh, very, very good learners. What does that actually, you know, entail, Alex? You know, there, there's obviously so many different elements to, to bringing someone through an academy setup or, mm. you know, through a, a youth kind of system. And, and, and how much of that is, is done, you know, in, in tactics, in classrooms? How much of it is done in bulwark on pitches? How much of it is done in... And how, how much does that trait affect kind of all of those things? Because obviously... You can teach someone, you know, a positional sense or, or those kind of things in, you know, a theoretical sense, and it's up to them to kind of apply it. But you also have to be like, right, you, you know, you're not fit enough. You need to go and run whatever it is or, or do this yeah. in the gym and X, Y, Z. How does that actually kind of apply to all the different scenarios? Because obviously there's loads of different elements to, to the way that you, you bring people through. Absolutely. It's, it's a really good point um, because actually, you know, there isn't a, there isn't a blueprint for doing this. There's not a there's not a book I don't think you can write that would actually say, oh, this is how you should develop a player because each player is different and they're going to want different things. And I think the way that you engage with them is going to be completely different in the first place. So, you know, for some of them, it you know it, it might be that it's a sit-down conversation and it's, um, 
you know, it's something which you think you can back up with maybe some some footage of them playing, and you might be able to, you know, explain to them that look, see this, this looks like it's a pattern in your game. I think if we do this on the training field, then we can help you with this. Not always problems. Sometimes they're doing something really well. Um, I think Harry Kane's a good example of someone who was outstanding at just wanting to work on his strengths. You know, he's an outstanding. He was a very good finisher, but he wanted to become better than very good. You know, he wanted to become the best, and he was obsessive about about becoming that. Um, so I think with with Harry, it was it's, it's more probably on the training field. It's more just coming up with things which are you know, pretty inventive, or, or or maybe just as much as just going in the bushes and collecting the balls and coming back out and starting again. Um, you know, that sometimes is the role of a coach. Um, but I think it's, it's, there's a different way in for all of them. There's, a, there's usually a different way of putting the message across. I think as you get older, you realise that the, the conversations that you have off the grass are probably more important than the ones that you have actually at the time when you're coaching. I think you, you see coaching a little bit differently when you get a bit more grey hair. I think you, you realise that actually you, it's important that you're credible on the pitch, but I think that you have to earn the right to be... Um, to be critical or to challenge, I think you have to earn that right first. And the way you do that is you, you know, I think you have to engage at some level. You have to establish a rapport. It's, it's very rarely that you can just go onto a pitch, start working with a player and putting the game to bits. So I think anyone in life wouldn't like that and wouldn't find that a comfortable experience. So I think that there has to be a process that goes before it. On Harry Kane there, you mentioned him. Has just how, just how good he has got, has that surprised you in any way? Because I know that fans of Millwall and Norwich, uh, where he went on loan and spent time on loan, they're surprised. And I just wondered, because obviously it felt like it just happened, whether or not you saw this coming from a very early stage, or if you're also a little bit surprised at just how good he's got. No, absolutely. I think that anyone that can say with certainty that you think they're going to get there, I'm, I'm not sure that that ever really happens. I think the only time, you know, if I'm referring back to that conversation with Nick and with Steve, I think the only time that's happened is probably I think Steve felt very, very sure that Michael Owen was going to get through at a young age. I think he was like 14, 15 when he could say, no, you're going to be a top player, which sort of stands to reason because 18 is playing in a World Cup. So, you know, he, he was, a, he was, he had an immense talent when he was, re, when he was really, really young. But with Harry, it would have been much, much later. I mean, John McDermott should take an awful lot of credit, the academy manager at Tottenham at the time for, be sticking with him at times when maybe there'd have been doubts or um, you know, I think John deserves the, the lion's share of the, of the credit along with Harry himself but you know sometimes something just clicks or it's the right manager at the right time and I think Tim Sherwood you know deserves credit because he, he put him in when Harry was sort of like not the obvious candidate to put in and there were alternatives and he you know he just was very very brave and I think I seem to remember him playing at Old Trafford I think and and scoring fairly early and from then, it just seemed to sort of happen for him. Um, so. My memory of Harry Kane under Tim Sherwood was donning the goalkeeper gloves. So we've got slightly different <laughs> memories there of, uh, of Harry Kane's time under Tim Sherwood. <laughs> well, I think this is the other thing that sometimes happens. I mean, Harry was playing under Tim when, when Tim was taking the sort of 21s team at Tottenham. But sometimes you need someone to you know, see something in you and show a bit of belief or a bit of faith. Uh, you know, I think... Very, very fortunate that Jürgen's done that with Trent. He's seen something in him and at times when maybe he had other options that were older, more experienced, he's, he's gone with his, his gut instinct and, and, and played him and, and, and allowed Trent to develop. Yeah, it's well, one that pays off when, you know, when, it, when, it, when, it, when it works, it really works. You know, it's, a, it's a strange, I guess it's a strange one to, to know. I mean, that probably leads us on to, to what the next trait would be, Alex. Yeah, I think the next one, and these are in no particular order, but I think that they have to be, I think they've got to be mentally, mentally tough. I think they've got to be resilient in terms of characters. And I think by resilience, you mean, I mean that they've, um, they've got to be able to, 
survive the, the inevitable roller coaster that football is. I think they've got to be able to sort of survive the lows as well as sort of survive the highs. And for a young player, that's, that's equally as dangerous because the highs can be rewarding of a new contract, increased money, more attention, more fame, et cetera, et cetera. And all the things that can probably just take the level of concentration or focus away from you. And I think there's the resilience needed around making it in the first team. You know, if you think about um, someone like Andros, had to do it the hard way, you know, I forget how many loan clubs he had, but it was, I'm sure it was more than 10. Um, and some of those were successful and some of those weren't. And you know, I'm sure at times when he's at Lake Norian or he's at Yeovil or, you know, it's not gone well for him at Watford or, or wherever it is, I'm sure that the dream of playing in the Premier League was was a long, long way away and he's had to find something to sort of keep going and, and stay strong. And I think that's, you know, that is so important. I wanted to ask you about like the UEFA Youth League. So that has brought increased prominence to 17, 18 and 19 year olds playing at that level. They are kind of superstars in their own kind of mini, mini arena, if you will. Does that add another layer of that, like keeping keeping those players, you know, in t- almost in check when they crest those highs? Because like I watch... I watch Liverpool's under-18s yeah. because of the UEFA Youth League, like I wouldn't have before, but it's just another avenue to watch them. But of course, players are gaining fame from that. Jaden Sancho is an example of that with Manchester City. Yeah, it's true. There's more notoriety now. I think it's harder for a player to be the surprise that just appears on the scene. There tends to be some sort of um, knowledge around them uh, before that. But again, I think it's just about setting the scene. You know, it, If they're successful in Champions Youth League games, then... There's no guarantee that that's going to give them entry into the next level. You know, and I think that's the that's the thing with with academy football, which I quite like. Is all right. So well done. You've you've ticked the box at the under 18s level. You've done really well. Well, okay, go go and do it in the under 19s in the Champions Youth League. Okay, you've done that. Fantastic. Go go and play in the 23s. See if you can get yourself noticed at Melwood. See if you can become credible with. Henderson, Lalana, Milner, <laughs> see if you can catch the manager's eye, okay, you've caught his eye, see if you can get a debut, you know, and whether your pathway is then okay, they want maybe go alone, maybe stay with them. There's always something else. And the hardest thing, of course, is once you actually get there, the hardest challenge for Trent wasn't necessarily getting his debut, it was keeping a shirt. That, that's, that's the hardest thing you have to do. Is, it's one thing getting there, it's a completely different thing staying there. Um, and I, I guess that's where you hope some, some sound advice comes in from, from the people that work around you. In terms of resilience, is it something you can, you can kind of sense as a coach? Is it something that you can, you can spot? Not necessarily from an early age, because as you say, you know, at young levels, it's kind of not really, you know, as you say, it's meant to be more fun than, than anything else. But, you know, once you start getting into those levels where you are on the brink of the 18s and it might be a job further down the line, is resilience something you can kind of see? Or it, does it take a certain situation to bring it out of people? Um, I think some players naturally have bumps in the road. That they have to, or hurdles they have to get over. I think that we have to be careful that we don't want to smooth out every bump that comes their way. That seems to be a society or a shift, in, a shift in, in society at the minute, whereby we're very keen that everyone has this happy existence all the time, when the reality is that you know, it's, it's really hard to become a footballer. It's really tough. And if it was that easy, everyone would probably want to crack at it. So it's, it, it is tough. And therefore, you know, the, the obstacles that come your way are often good. And I think that the, the nature of parenting is, is to want to stop your kids from from suffering or you're wanting to sort of make sure that they're never unhappy but actually if you want to the, the three qualities that I admire so I, I would love our players to be resilient adaptable 
and I'd love them to be independent when they, you know, when, when you say goodbye to them. And that's probably the same as a parent for my two children. I'd love them to be those three things that when they leave home and go and do whatever it is they're going to do next, I'd love them to be resilient, adaptable and independent because that's, that's life. And, and part of that is that they have to overcome the hurdles or the bumps along the way. And, and part of my responsibility as a coach and a parent is not to smooth out every single one and not to help them necessarily get over everything. They have to find a way of doing it themselves sometimes. And I think... You know, for those players, I've, I've always subscribed to the fact that if I've very rarely seen a gold medalist come through, so the one that the, the, the kid that was at the top of the, well, you know, the best one in the group really early on, you know, and I, I understand this is I'm limiting this to my experience, but I rarely see them come through. It's usually the silver or the bronze medalist, or sometimes, you know, goodness me, Harry Kane at 14 wasn't even on the podium. So, you know, I think that those, those that have something to constantly, um, prove or, or obstacles to get over tend to be the ones that then end up coming through there's a different pressure being the gold medalist and that you've got to stay there yeah well it's the Ravel Morrison story isn't it that everybody always says that Ravel Morrison was the player he was the one that was constantly you know sh- like absolutely shocking everyone at United and yeah it just hasn't quite happened for him at the very top level still obviously a you know very good footballer and has played across the world and done good things but not quite to the level I think where the, the hype around him built to an almost unimaginable level. Yeah, and, and there's, there's, there is there's a different pressure. And I think that there's, um, you know, there's something to be said in when you are having to overcome difficulties, that you learn how to do it and it doesn't frighten you the next time. And, and I suppose it's the, it's the growth mindset, perhaps things around, you know, the Carol Dweck stuff around. Maybe you just see obstacles or challenges. You, you actually sort of enjoy them. You, you, you relish the fact. Um, you know, and I think that then that, that helps form part of your footballing identity. Lovely. Let's bounce on to, to trait number three then. Trait number three I've got down, <laughs> their loan maintenance, which probably segues in quite nicely to what we've just been talking about. And loan maintenance for me means that the, the problems that you are constantly, you know, if, if, you, if you're driving home from a session and you're thinking about the player, you, you tend to be thinking about, you, you're thinking about the game. You're not thinking about all the, the noise that might be surrounding the outside of it like that perhaps seen with other players you're just thinking about what it is in in the game itself that you'd like to to work on and, and teach them how to practice or teach them how to you know, a different technique or whatever it might be there's there tends to be no real excess baggage around that it's it's quite simple the ones that I've been fortunate enough to work with you know you're not you're not wondering what they're up to or where they are at any given point you're not really worried about whether they're preparing correctly for games or it's it's there's a, there's a lovely simplicity to, to how they are. This is, I imagine, where Dean that, fell down. <laughs> yeah, this is why Dean didn't make it. Is, is there anyone that stands out for the right reasons rather than the wrong reasons? Like that chap. I was very low maintenance. I was very low maintenance. It's a shame about now. <laughs> yeah, Alex. Yeah. Any any uh, any standouts in that area for you that you oh, can that you can think? I suppose of? all of them. Because if I you know again refer back to the conversation with Steve and with Nick, this isn't just a list that came up with players that I've been fortunate enough to work with. This was something that Steve would say was was with all of the players that hit you know the the, the Manamans, the Fowlers, the Owens, the Carragers, the Gerrards, the Warnocks, the. Um, goodness me, the, the, his list has went on and on and on, and it'll be the same with with Nick. You know, he'd be saying that your best ones tend to be very low maintenance, and and again, maybe that comes down to the fact that they've got very supportive, trusting families that who you know who are around them who just you know, will, will probably say the right thing to them in the absence of you being there. So I think that for a lot of kids, the journey home from training you know can be can be quite tough. You know, you can have the you know the the inquest while we're wearing a 
a green bib and not a yellow bib? Why, you know, what did the coach say to you over there? Why were you in that team and not in the other team? You know, for, for some kids, the journey home is a tough one. Um, so I think that part of that low maintenance is also the approach of the parents. It's also what they're surrounded by. And it's, it's probably the parents' ability just to trust the coaches or the process. And, you know, whilst that means, doesn't mean that you don't want them to have an opinion or, or have a voice, it, there, there's a level of trust there. I think a really good example I can give you is, I mean, I think Trent's really lucky to have the, the support he has around him with his family. And I, I know I've sort of said it on record, but, you know, if I could have... Um, uh, I think a sort of like an ideal parent in terms of support. Then, for, for all the academy, you know, you know his mum Diane is is incredible. Just tells Trent like it is. You know, he's he's very grounded. He still has to, you know, do chores around the house. Even now, I'm sure he, <laughs> he wouldn't want me saying that. But it's true. He's, you know, he's surrounded by honesty. If he has a good game, I'm sure he's told. If he has a bad game, I'm sure it, it's just a an environment of being honest and. What's the flip of that, Al? Is it, is it bad for you if, if a parent thinks that the sun shines out of their kid's backside, I guess? Yeah, of course, because you just want them to be fair. But you also want, you respect the fact that you want them to be parents. I should know better. When I watch my son play football with, with the years of experience and, like I said, the grey hair that I've now got, I'd like to think I could watch him with a slightly different lens, but I still watch him with the lens of a, for a parent. I'm still, I still have, you know, the same ridiculous thoughts that parents have. You know, he does something well. If he, if he does something really good, I sort of I look around and think, oh, I hope the coach is seeing that. Or, and I'm, I'm like, okay, come on, Alex, get a, I'm the academy manager here. I should, be, I should be setting the example, or not? But, but it's hard. It's really, really tough, you know. And and there is an element where you just you just need them to to trust trust in the in the process. And like I said, you know, it all ties in, doesn't it? You know, you're going through the when you're going through the, the dips, or you're going through the the parts of the games which, you know, where a kid is growing, for example, that's really tough when the lads sort of like hit 12, 13, 14 and suddenly their bodies start changing. Some shoot up, some stay still, some get quicker, some who were quick and are now slow, some who could, lovely technicians, suddenly look like they're playing with a rugby ball. It just, it changes. That's why I call them the foggy years. You can just lose players in there. And it's hard for coaches to watch. It's hard for parents to, to watch. And, you know, you, you see it. So you just, you know, every single year it's the same thing. So you just, in the end, we become, or you know, I certainly become a lot calmer. Um, but, um, but yeah, you just, you know, like I say, it's, low maintenance is something which I, you know, I feel I have to define, but I definitely think it's the environment that you're surrounded by. Do you think there's something in, in the fact that, I mean, I know this is particularly prevalent at, at Liverpool, but, you know, the, the kind of localised environments that you see and, and, and so many products of, of the Liverpool Academy are, you know, real close-knit, Liverpool boys and you know you've mentioned there obviously you know Gerard, your Carrows, your Trents and you, you look at that and you think that's a that there's something there you know that there's something in the in the fact that there is close-knit units around the ground or around the club that our, our people are able to sort of ferry back and forth from in, in a way that maybe people don't have in London you see people from London you know all across the all across the capital and you know you have people from from South London in North London academies or, or people from East London in West London academies and all of those things whereas in Liverpool it seems a little bit more tight-knit yeah it's a really good observation and um, clearly you can tell I'm not a scouser let's put him on a, <laughs> a London accent but I can say from having lived in the city for seven years it, it is I find it wonderfully unique I think there is something around players, if they're fortunate enough to sort of have that opportunity to play for the one club, 
for their careers. I don't. I think it is completely unique. You know, you can see that someone like a Gerard or a Stephen Gerard or, or Jamie Carragher, and I'm hoping that that's with Trent as well. That they, they feel like they're representing the city. It is so close knit. They feel like they're representing their people, and it's 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 incredible when you when you hear them speak about their club. Um, it, it really is, and I, you know, not every player is lucky enough to do that. Some players, of course, you know, maybe they have to leave because they're not going to get an opportunity to play for the club anymore. You know, but I think if you if you speak to the people that have had a significant imprint in the uh, in, in the in the history of the club, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm I'm so lucky to to have people like Sir Kenny Dalglish come to the academy and Robbie Fowler and Rob Jones and Steve McManaman and, and Michael Owen and, um, and obviously Stephen Gerrard and Jamie Carrigan, all of that. And, and when you speak to them, they, they they do speak as though it's their club. They speak as though it is. You know, it, it is their club. It, it's you know, I'm very aware that I'm just a custodian of it for a you know the period of time that I'm lucky enough to to be around and asked to, um, to be a part of the club but um, you're right it's a special city and and I think that, that there's a wish for players to, to play for it and see their you know to see their careers out there absolutely and that's uh, probably a nice one to roll on to, to trait four trait four I have got they've got a natural enthusiasm um, and a real love of the game, a genuine love of the game. Um, you know, most of the players, I think pretty much all of the players that you know, I'd work with or Steve would work with or Nick would work with, would all say the same thing, that you don't, that they're actually, they're football geeks, they, they, they love football. <laughs> they sort of like, they'd, they'd watch anything they to do with football. They tend to know everything about it. And you know, more importantly than that, they just love playing it. They just, they, they just genuinely love playing the game. Um, it's not a chore. It's not a... You know, training was never seen as a, oh, it's training today, what are we doing? It was the whole environment that they loved being in. Is it the story of Rooney after his debut or scoring a goal, goes and plays football with his mates in the, yeah. you know, in... in yeah, in... We, we, did a, we did a piece recently on BR Football, which was Wayne, uh, sorry, Marcus Rashford talking to Ryan Giggs about their experiences coming through the academy. And Rashford told Giggs that um, when he was 17 years of age, just before his, his debut, uh, he would go and play an academy game. And then he'd go into the centre of Manchester and play five-a-side yeah. with his mates. And uh, he tried to do it after he'd made his uh, goal-scoring debut in the Europa League. And everybody just swamped yeah. him. Uh, so he couldn't do that anymore. But up until that point, he was still after training, going and playing with his mates. And Giggs, because he was technically on the staff with Louis van Gaal at the time, looked at him and went, what? <laughs> I had no idea you were doing that. It's like... He was supposed to be his job to keep track of him or whatever, and he just had no idea. You can't I, stop him. I kind of like that. Um, not, I mean, I, I don't know whether the, the players do that now. What I do know is that when I was the 18s coach at, at Tottenham, Andros taught me a really Andros Townsend taught me a really um, valuable lesson in that. So what he do is, that, you know, I was a little bit obsessive around collecting the footballs so back then. You know, sort of like belt and braces, and I think it was sort of the schooling I'd had at Leatherhead and um, Lake Orient and, and Exeter as a coach that you know footballs are, are valuable so if they go in the bushes you, you, you know you don't. so anyway I'd always be really really fastidious about making sure the right number in and whenever Andrews was training I'd always be sort of like a football down I could never work it out and eventually I really sort of used to you know I used to, used to really annoy me but <laughs> we'd, we'd go and have lunch and then later on in the afternoon when the boys in the event doing their jobs or whatever it would be I'd just peer out the window and there'll be Andros just practicing down in some sort of corner of the field. We thought I couldn't see him. And what he used to do is he used to kick a ball in the bushes, hide it there, and then in the afternoon go and collect the football. And then he'd just go and practice on his own. Like a five-year-old. 
Yeah, I still, I still refer back to that, Dean. I think to myself, well, that was probably the best bit of coaching I did was probably just to turn the other way. Yeah. Just, just ignore it mm. and just sort of smile. And, and I, I knew, I mean, of all the ironies, I, I knew he was sort of like <laughs> jumping over the fact, I mean, of all, he was uh, obviously playing with Tottenham, but he was, he was using Arsenal's training ground on a, on a Sunday. He'd jump over the fence because he lived next door to it. <laughs> their equipment and ball just to go and practice, make himself better. And that was our, so although you know these things and all right, you might have to point out at some stage, all right, be careful, injuries, et cetera, et cetera. I, I also really admire that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I, I remember when, when you were, when you peered out the window, was he, was he dribbling down the right and then cutting it on his left <laughs> and then shooting? Is that, is that what he's doing? Well, do you know what? The funny thing was he was, he was really, um, desperate to become two-footed and he worked really hard to become credible on both sides because at one point he was you know, of course you know left-footed but when he used to play in the youth team at, um, at Tottenham we didn't really play with inverted wingers then it was uh, it was a bit more linear you know left left foot to left side so Andrews played on the left more often than not so he would get forced on the right hand side and he, he just it would, and that's the other thing I think that when they practice it tends to be purposeful you know it's not just doing things for the sake of it it's not just learning tricks that are never going to be used it's actually something that they think is going to add to their their armory and i think that's so important when kids practice you know or when they're, they're you know, okay it's the imagination player get all of that but at that level it's like um an obsession just to add something to their game that they think is going to make a difference when they play i can actually flip this on its head because something's just come to me actually so when uh, we joined leatherhead's youth team so we moved with alex from from our team horsley on, onto a team called leatherhead and uh, so that's when it starts to become a little bit serious. There was a group of us that went over and it was, must have been the, one of the first pre-season games at Leatherhead. And we had a big squad because we were kind of inherited, Alex inherited another side but was bringing a team with him. So we had to kind of try and decide who he was going to get in that team. And us lot group of mates weren't in the first half of the game. So we went over to another goal <laughs> and we were just playing headers and volleys and, and kicking each other up in the air or, or whatever, and just messing around. And we didn't watch the first half of that game. And you gave us a bollocking <laughs> because, you, because you said, you know, you've got to start taking this seriously now. It's all very well that, that you go and have a laugh with each other. And I don't mind you playing, but you've got to watch this game. You want to get in this team. These are the players you've got to be better than. So I, there is clearly some part of you that thinks that the fun ends somewhere. Yeah, Dean, Andros Townsend wasn't <laughs> doing it on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> he went off a bit of. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're probably right. And and listen, I'm not sure that, you know, I look back, I was probably, what, 30 years of age, 29, 30 years yeah, of age. Yeah, and so yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not sure that I saw things clearly back then and you make your, your fair share of mistakes. So I'm not sure if that was the right thing to do or not with hindsight. Well, apology okay. accepted. Yeah, we'll move on. I didn't apologise. I just said I wasn't <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> it seems a natural point. It seems a natural roll-on point. <laughs> yeah. So, is it the fifth one? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So this is probably. Um, I think the best players tend to have an affinity with credible coaches, and I think they. You know, it's different from being coachable. I think that they. I think it's different from being open-minded. I think they have um, a special bond or a link with coaches who they think can help them get to where they want to want to get to. Um, I think that. As a coach, you have to earn the right for that. Um, talking about engaging with players earlier, sort of establishing rapport. Well, the easiest way to establish rapport with a player is, is to be a good coach, you know, because I think that there's a natural, I think there's a natural link between 
a good or a, a talented or a talented young player with potential will look on a coach and think, okay, well, you know, you, you intrigue me. You've got a way where you can actually help me. And I think it's vice versa. I think a, a, a coach who is credible will see a young talent and naturally be drawn to them thinking, oh, you know, I want, I'm in, you're interested by you now. I want to see how you can progress um, and what role, if, if, if any role, I can play within that. I think it's, um, especially with the younger age groups. I think that's I think that's really really important. I think that your better players tend to have that affinity with incredible coaches. Steve, I always got a lovely expression that if you if you play for ten seasons or ten years in the game, you're going to be sold seven different versions of how that game should be played, and each coach is going to say this is the definitive way of how you play football. And it might be, but the average tenureship of a of a manager, depending on which league you you play in, you know, let's let's, let's say it's a season and a half or a season. You know, if you're there three years, you're going to get sold three different versions of the game. So you have to do that. Yeah, if you're a Chelsea player, you get taught 15 different versions in six months. <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the philosophy that the Liverpool lads are taught now? Well, I think that it depends on which age group you're, you're, you're in. Um, I think that the most important thing is, is there is a style, but there isn't a shape. Because, again, going into that adaptability, if you look at the first team, I think the first team part of the... You know, the, the, you know I, I really enjoy watching our first team play and I think it's the flexibility that they show within their within their shape and I think as a kid you've got to be very careful that you you don't pin them down to a particular shape or a particular way I think that it's got to be a style and we like to play we like to play the sort of you know the sort of football that we think our you know our supporters want to watch you know they've been brought up on a rich diet of of um of football which you know, includes wanting the ball and wanting to attack they want to see goals um, don't want it to be passive. I think that the football has to represent the city, and the city is is built on hard work. It's built on, you know, excitement and, and flair. So I think that that's why I think I think that the crowd dictates what style of football you're playing in. There's been quite a lot of talk, you know, about this though, about the way that the the style filters down that Liverpool, and obviously there's there's so many different elements of that, and, and like you say, it's never going to be the same at under 14 as it is at, at under 23. But especially in the 23s and the 18s, we've seen that kind of almost interchangeable methods that, that people have been able to jump into that side and we saw in the in the F, in the league cup and in the fa cup that that you know the players are able to sort of transition into into that side and the first team kind of methods quite quite seamlessly in many regards and is that something that's been deliberate or is it just something that naturally flows down from you see something working in, in the first team and obviously that's where everyone is kind of aiming up at, right? That's where the, all eyes are on in, in many ways. And you think, right, okay, to be able to be part of that setup, even if it's a, a pipe dream and you're under 15s and you're not going to be in that setup for, for years and it might be a completely different method and completely different, you know, setup at the time. But does it kind of just unconsciously filter down because like that's where I'm aiming at and that's therefore how I should be looking at it? Um... I think it depends again on which age groups. I think that if you're looking at you know our nines and our tens, elevens, then I think there are things that we'd probably put ahead of. You know, they're exploring the game, aren't they? They're just sort of like finding out what the game is like. So you wouldn't necessarily expect them to counter press and, and things to be too um, too serious. Yeah. Too serious at that age. You know, I'm just desperate that we're not the ones that get them to fall out of love with football. You know, that, that's that's basically what we want to do is just keep their love and enjoyment for the game, and then as they get older. Referring back to what I said earlier about it being the best Sunday league club ever. Well, if you, you know, you've got to live that as well. You don't want it to be too serious too soon. And I think that there's an awful lot of, in, in the younger age groups around skill acquisition and, you know, enjoying the ball and you know, staying on the ball a bit longer perhaps. But then you're right, as they get older, we have to prepare them for, for what's to come. I think that in the professional development phase, I think that when they, 
when they start getting towards sort of 17, 16, 17, they're, and they're going to the youth team, then I think we have got to do a very credible impression of how the first team play or try and play. And we understand that with the boys that we have available, with where they are in their own development and their age, then that, that's sometimes going to be difficult to, to play exactly like the first team will play. But we'll do a good impression of it. And the 23s will try and do a good impression of it. But the finishing school is really when they go to Melbourne. You know, there is no one better or more capable of getting them to play the way that the first team does than Jürgen. And he is, you know, that, that, that is the ultimate finishing school when you're, when you're coached by him. You know, what, what we try and do is that there'd be no real surprises when you go there. You, you know you've got to work hard. You know you've got to be humble and work for the team. Of course you have to run. Of course you have to have a, a high level of skill. But So our job is to prepare them for that moment. You know, you most of our boys will get one audition. Some are lucky enough to get more, but most of the boys at some point will have an opportunity to go there and have an audition. The best that we can do is prepare them for that. And you know, you don't want it to be that they go there and there's suddenly a big surprise and they're being asked to do something that isn't familiar to them. So I suppose, in essence, all you're ever doing as an academy is you're trying to create a habit. And that's, that's our job is to create habits because the moment they leave you, that's all they're left with. And you hope that they are, they're able to sort of maintain their, their standards and and when they get the opportunity or the call to go to, to train with the first team, that you know that they have a, a solid foundation from which the manager may or may not look at them and say, okay, well, this is you know, something I think I can work with here. And you know, we've been very, very fortunate that he's seen something in, in quite a few of the players that he would like to work with. But he, he's the ultimate finishing school. He's, he's the one who will get them to play exactly the way that he wants them to. Kind of wrap things up. I mean, we were talking about you know what it takes to be a professional footballer and just. I guess one last anecdote really of something that Alex said in the past when we were kids and it was like don't be that don't be that old man sat sat in a pub sat at the bar telling everyone how good you could have been telling everyone you could have made it telling everyone you had a trial once because no one cares if you didn't make it no one cares it's not a story and that's another one that, that did stick with me and I think that just through those traits that that you've listed off there I think that that kind of encapsulates that. I think that if you have got those five traits, then then you're probably not going to be that that old man sat there um, thinking of what could have been because you've actually tried to make things happen. And I think that a lot of play, players would have will have fallen down, whether it be through dedication, whether it be through just kind of having their head turned at the wrong time, and bad luck as well. Bad luck does come into things, but ultimately, I think we've we've definitely got a clearer picture here of of what it takes to make the grade. Yeah, I think that. Probably what I was trying to say, and I'd, I'd, I'd hopefully say it a bit more eloquently now, is that I don't, yeah, I, I agree with that. I still stand by that. Don't be the sort of the bitter man in the pub who sort of, I could have done this, I could have done that. You, what you'd want to say is you've got no regrets. Yeah. You know, and, and if you're not good enough, let it be that you just, you weren't quite good enough. Don't let it be that you weren't dedicated enough, or don't let it be that you, you couldn't be bothered just to do it. Just, you know, give it, give it all. And if it's not quite good enough, then that's fine, because all we can all do in life is, is reach our potential, whatever that potential is um i think that the other thing which i would just end on which i think it runs through all of these um all of the characteristics is any player that i've been fortunate enough to work with that's gone on to play at the highest highest level are ridiculously competitive and i mean just ridiculous to want to if, if the warm-up was a competition they'd want to win the warm-up you know if yeah. And, and they take that to every single facet of their life. And that's the one thing which I think is, you know, people sort of say there's a, you know, of course they're competitive and they want to win. My God, if, if you had a, you know, the young, the, the young lads or like, whether it's a Trent or Harry Kane or Tom Carroll, Andrew Townsend, or whoever it is, just through the roof, 
competitive and um, they take it to a new level. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge. It's been one enlightening, frankly. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, lads, that was absolutely enlightening, wasn't it? What, what guy. Dean, you've, uh, you've blessed us there with Alex's presence. You need to call me in Zaggy from now on, mate, I think. Um, <laughs> but, um, always offside. <laughs> Pippo. We'll call you Pippo. Um, yeah, like I told you, you had one of the greatest minds I've ever come across in football. And I think that you get, you get a kind of um, just a different way of reading the game when you speak to somebody like that. And you hear the, the kind of um, the deep thoughts that they have about and the opinions that they have on certain areas of the game. And I think that that, that is just something you don't come across with your everyday chats with your mates in football. And that's why it, it's so enlightening to, to talk to people like this. I, I'm really interested, though, what, what you lads made of it. Because obviously I've known him for years. I knew what it was going to be like. Yeah, I was super impressed. Um, like, super, super impressed. And I just, I couldn't help but feel uh, throughout throughout the talk that we had with him, um, you know, how eloquent and how reserved and, and how thorough uh, that he was and how as a if I was a parent of uh, a kid in the Liverpool system and uh, you know and, and, and a parent of a kid who Alex was dealing with like how comfortable and confident I would I would feel yeah. with with him in charge of, of kind of stewarding stewarding my, my son or daughter through not just the football world but like the other part of it as well um, yeah. I couldn't yeah it was it was really impressive to see someone who was just felt so much like a, almost like a father figure uh, to probably just to probably hundreds of people hundreds of kids yeah, he's a, a very special bloke and he seems to be doing such a wonderful job. I mean, wherever he's gone, you've seen success stories and he, he was obviously keen to play himself down in much of that. But you see, you know, the results speak for themselves and, and the players that he's brought through and he, he mentioned right at the beginning are, are names that everybody knows. And, you know, that in itself is testament to his ability uh, you know, as a coach, but also as as a steward, like Sam says, of, of bringing people through into into the full kind of nature of, of what can be a really bloodthirsty sport at times. You know, this is, you know, it's full throttle football and, and people don't give you a minute's peace and they don't give you the time and things to settle. And so for him to have brought through so many success stories in such a short period of time, and, and I imagine that this is going to go on for, for some years now, you know, into the future, that, that we see someone you know, of his caliber and obviously it's so interesting to get his insights. Um, so thank you so much to Alex for joining us and all that's really left to do is say thank you to you two guys. So thank you, Sam Ty. Thank you, mate. Thank you, Dean Jones. Welcome back. Glad to be back. Thank you. Good I'm going to get back to that. <laughs> I've been Jack Collins, Rank Squad. Remember, stay safe and make sure to think about things this week and take in things a little deeper. There's lots going on, and it's you know a time for reflection and and working out where you can be a positive influence on this and, and the world as a whole. So we'll see you next week. Take care.